The offseason's just beginning, but we have plenty to talk about on this episode of the Indie Ball Report Podcast. Episode number 138 of the Indie Ball Report Podcast. I'm Nick. He's Will. We got stuff to talk about this week because we recorded in the middle of last week and then a bunch of stuff happened in the last, like, two and a half days of the week. I mean, we were kind of asking for it, right? Like, yeah. The, there's no way that, considering we usually record on, like, a, a Friday morning more often than not yeah. and stuff still tends to happen, I mean, when you're giving it a couple days in advance, I mean, you're really asking for it to happen. And sure enough, it did. Oh, absolutely. I mean, like, honestly, I'm kind of surprised more stuff didn't happen. Like, I was half ready for a team to fold on, like, Friday night. Just yes. so that way we'd be able to put that out and just go, it was a pretty short week this week. But, exactly. But, yeah, so I guess we're doing a little bit of cleanup work this week on that front. And uh, we could just kind of get into that cleanup work by talking about some managers. And, of course, we have actual news that happened over the past week as well, too. But... um <clears throat> First, I just want to get to uh, Kansas City. I think we may have mentioned this last week. I honestly don't know. It came out on the day we recorded, so I assume we may have made mention of it in passing, but just in case we didn't, um, they re-upped Joe Calciopietra, so he's back for another three years through 2024, two championships in his tender as a manager of the, I guess, T-Bone slash Monarchs. He is closing in on 250 wins as their manager, 246, where he sits right now, to only 153 losses. And this will be his fifth season in Kansas City. We'll just take a quick moment to talk about the reigning American Association Manager of the Year. And I think it's safe to say that this may have been the easiest decision of the offseason in Kansas City. Not, not only was it the easiest decision that the Monarchs would have made for the for this offseason. Not only that, but I think that the meeting between Brandmeier and uh, and Kafa Piesha was probably just like, all right, how many more years do you want on your contract? Eh, we'll go with three. Okay. And then uh, they agree on whatever like basic salary they do, and then it's done. I mean, Kafa Piesha is one of the best managers in indie ball. Uh, he's did a terrific job this year, uh, specifically just building an absolute unit uh, oh, that yeah. was the Kansas City Monarchs this year, and he deserves so much credit for that. So as long as he wants to be the manager of the Kansas City Monarchs, he will be the manager of the Monarchs. So this definitely isn't surprising and a very, very easy decision uh, for Kansas City, certainly. Oh, absolutely. The man, I don't think, has had a losing season in Kansas City during his time there. So it's clear as day you're going to bring him back, and I think you're interested, right? It's just a matter of let's just figure out the years, and we'll just re-up it where we're at, and we'll just keep going until you don't want to continue this because on the Kansas City side, I'm sure they have no desire to uh, have him walk at any point. That brings us to manager number two of the week because I know we talked about Ottawa's manager last week, and when we were talking about that, I mentioned... Well, Steve Brooks still an option out there, and I'm kind of surprised he's not yeah. back in Ottawa and whatnot. And I threw Gateway out there as, you know, maybe he goes to Gateway. 
not at all knowing that, you know, you'd wind up in Gateway, but just kind of saying, hey, there's an opening. Yeah, I know he's going to be the pitching coach there a couple of years back. Uh, maybe that happens. Well, it's happened. So that's always gra- grand to see as he was named the manager of Gateway. I believe it was Friday. And uh, he was previously scheduled to manage Ottawa, of course, and that fell through. He's going to be the pitching coach in 2020 for uh, the Gateway Grizzlies. But again, that kind of fell through because, you know, COVID. And before all of this, he had spent 10 seasons with the River City Rascals, also a Frontier League team. I don't believe they were terribly far away from where Gateway is located either. Uh, he put together a very good record of 542 wins to 415 losses, two championships in his time as the manager of the River City Rascals. And he spent three years in the Frontier League before all of this coaching began as a player. So, all in all, we've talked about Steve Brook and how great of a hire he's been in the past. I'm sure if you go back to when he was announced as the manager of Ottawa, it's going to sound not terribly dissimilar to what we're going to say here. But, uh, obviously, Gateway's had some rough years as of recent. This is a guy that can definitely help him turn it around, and it makes a lot of sense in my mind. Well, yeah, Gateway certainly had a rough year this year, uh, and, and they're going to be looking to turn it around, and perhaps there's no man better to do it than Steve Brook. I mean, we, we've talked so at length on this podcast about Steve Brook and, and how good of a manager he is and the success that, that he really brings to the table with Gateway. And just it's a really, really good hire for Gateway. And the fact that Steve Brook wanted to was, – is willing to go there, I think there's certainly some better days ahead there. It's funny. You look at uh, the Grizzlies general manager uh, yeah. and his, his quote – he ends his statement with, I haven't been this excited for a team in almost a decade, which I don't know if as much as I want to say, wow, he's really excited, but also like, wow, this team's really sucked for a while. Yeah, like you haven't had any sort of other like player acquisition or manager hire or other event. I got you there. Like, yeah. oh, sure. It's just like he's just saying it to say, but yeah, I, I see where you're coming from, too. You, you know, it's like, it's not something. I'm no, I'm no PR expert, yeah. uh, certainly, but it is an interesting way to end a statement saying, I haven't been this excited for a team in almost a decade. So, you know, it's. I, I just thought it was funny. Yeah. I, of, of course, they, they have not had a ton of success. Uh, recently, and a guy like Steve Brook, who's going to recruit players very well in that area, uh, is going to help them out. I mean, let's just look at their last, count them, six seasons. I mean, they haven't made the playoffs since 2012, right? Uh, I mean, 45 and 50, 44 and 51, 32 and 64. 38 and 58, 39 and 57, 38 and 57. I mean, they need a change there. Right, and for a yeah. team that has has had their years where they've had some success, they've had they've had one championship, they've had they've won the, the Western Division three times. They they've not had much success recently. I mean, when you haven't made the playoffs in nine years, uh, you definitely need a change. So you know what? I can see why he hasn't been this excited for a team in almost a decade because you know what? I, I don't I don't think I don't think you should be right yeah. and. Uh, it's. It, 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 I just thought it was a funny statement 
Uh, it's very yeah. informal, and I, I kind of like that. Uh, but this this is really where you look for to see Gateway try and turn it around uh, because they had the right man in place to do it, even though they, they have struggled for quite a while. Yeah, struggle is a good way to put it. And, I mean, they, they certainly do have the right guy here. I mean, you look at the team we put together that would have taken the field in Ottawa, and a lot of those players went on to have just fantastic seasons. Now, obviously, yeah. it's kind of hard to apply their seasons uh, to what would have happened in Ottawa because, you know, it's a whole different, I hate to use the pun here, but a whole different ball game because you're playing in a different home park surrounded by a different team, and there's a whole set of dynamics that really cannot be applied here and the, the numbers really can't transfer over but it does say that there was a lot of really good players that were on that team that were scheduled to take the field for that team so you know i do think that he's going to be able to do the same thing in gateway that may be an easier sell than going to play in ottawa i'm not necessarily certain but that could be something that you know helps entice players over likewise he just knows what he's doing he's a guy that has put together successful teams in the past more than just Ottawa if you want to look at actual results and teams that took the field prior to the 2021 season in 19 he was technically the reigning champion as far as managers go with River City there and clearly any guy that has over a hundred more wins than he has losses as a manager knows what he's doing as far as putting a good team on the field and getting them to you know the actual finish line so I, you know, I'm really, I'm really interested to see what he's going to be able to do in Gateway, and uh, hopefully, they'll be able to break out of this rut, and if not, make the postseason at least have a competitive team and a winning record. I, I think that would even just be considered a successful season for them on the field. Uh, but one of the pieces that's going to help them, and I know before we uh, we started the show, we had a different itinerary for going through this stuff here but i feel like it's a natural transition to just talk about some of the trades that were made since he's taken over here being that we're talking about steve brook we should just talk about some of the players he managed to acquire and about a week ago some of the bigger trades were made across here and one of those bigger trades here was gateway acquiring uh carter hay or trading carter hayes my mistake uh, along with alonzo jones and carlos vega to Ottawa in exchange for Trevor Achenbach, Andrew Penner, and Hector Sanchez. So obviously a huge trade. All three of the guys acquired were all guys that Brooke had brought to Ottawa. So now I think it's just a matter of, look, they want to play for him, so we might as well just trade them to him so that way uh, we can get something in return for these three guys. And obviously it's a great trade for uh, for Ottawa here, but I just want to kind of break that down a little bit. I think how you broke it down is probably probably the right way to go about it just because especially in trades in indie ball there's some some that you're just making trades to make your team better i think this is an example of just sending guys who uh, wanted to be with steve brook and they traded him to gateway from ottawa and ottawa just trying to get or yeah just ottawa trying to get uh some sort of somewhat players in return to, to try and help build that roster there. But a lot of talent certainly going to Gateway in this trade. Uh, I think that's certainly notable. Uh, and with, with Achenbach, Penner, and and Sanchez, uh, definitely a good, a good place to start with this Gateway roster. 
Yeah, absolutely. You bring in these guys. Andrew Penner's a guy I was really high on last year, and I've remained high on since. So I'm I'm totally on board with him. Hector Sanchez had a great year in the Atlantic League. So obviously he's going to be able to come in here, take up a veteran spot, sure. But he's going to be is that the Hector Sanchez? I believe it is the Hector Sanchez, if I remember right, from the Ottawa announcement when he was signed. It said former major leaguer Hector Sanchez. So I'd assume it have to be the same Hector Sanchez. I guess there's not too many catcher Hector Sanchez's. So. Exactly. That that's my thinking too, because I distinctly remember seeing that graphic, and I was like, "Oh wow, that's actually a pretty interesting." Why would, he sign, why would he sign in Ottawa though? I guess he just really likes Steve Brook. Yeah, I mean, like, hey, you saw what he did for the Atlantic League. Look what he could do okay. in the Frontier League now. I know. I mean, see, it's funny that like his numbers in the Atlantic League aren't as good as you think. So I guess yeah. on second thought, it's not crazy uh but i mean certainly as far as the frontier league a guy who can run a young pitching staff i mean noted that that it's hard to find guys who are better than hector sanchez i mean the guy's a world series champion yeah so uh so a lot of experience under his belt and kind of bring some of that to gateway oh absolutely there and obviously trevor was like the first pick in the uh Ottawa draft that they had to have this past year, and I believe he had a, he wound up having a pretty solid year, if I'm not mistaken, uh, for Lake Erie. But that will still yet to be seen how that uh, will transfer over there. On the flip side for Gateway, I don't really think uh, there's all too much that was uh, given up there with Carter Hayes, Alonzo Jones, and Carlos Vega. Not bad players, but certainly not the same. Appeal is what you're getting back on the flip side there. No, definitely not. I think that you're really just looking to get something in return for guys who weren't going to end up signing uh, signing back in Ottawa anyway. So I, I think it's just getting something. It's just getting something for those guys. I don't think it's it's that is it's that big of a deal. But uh, certainly a good start for the Gateway roster, though. That's for sure under under Steve Brook. Yeah, absolutely. This will be very interesting to see how that turns out here. We'll turn our attention, though, to one of the, the more interesting trades, because there is technically another one in the Frontier League, but it's just a conclusion of the Braxton Davison deal. The uh, the future returns finally came through, and that's Matt McGarry and Ryder Yackel. I don't believe, at least according to the page, uh, McGarry signed yet. Yackel did sign uh, yesterday, though, so at least one of those pieces is now officially in Joliet, so it's obviously a really nice signing there, or a nice return for Braxton Davidson, but you knew it was going to be a nice return. If you're Schomburg, you're not terribly upset because it's like, okay, yeah, it's a bit of a steeper price, but we did win the championship, which is kind of the goal of baseball, which is to win your league championship. That, that's what they say. Supposedly, yeah, well, unless you're one of the teams that just likes to tank like the Orioles. But, anywho... So you're not really upset about that. And if you're a team like um, like Joliet, you're like, hey, you know, we traded a guy that, while a great ball player, sure, wasn't really going to help us anymore this year because we knew our fate. They moved him out, and they got a couple of guys that really could actually help them a lot this upcoming year. Yeah, I mean, uh, I think when you look at the guys that ended up getting in return, I mean, uh, both kind of on the younger side, as far as as far as McGarry, he played he, last year. 30, 34th round pick was in the Yankees system. 
he struggled a little bit last year at the play. Didn't have a didn't have a great year. Uh, and then as far as as far as Yackel, I hope I'm saying that right. I mean, you're taking a guy who did well in college and ha- had some struggles in Schaumburg, uh, but st- still a young guy going into now his second professional season. So uh, it- it's a trade that makes sense for both sides. It's not it's not always about getting equal value in that in that sense, but I think that. I think it's certainly a solid move, for sure. Yeah, like, for me, like, with Yankel, I think he will eventually just turn into a really nice bullpen piece for them. I think there's enough college sample size to be able to say that he has that potential. I don't think it's a total wash there. Like you were saying with McGarry, he he's a weird dude because I feel like he should be a better hitter than he is, but he has yet to kind of show that. I still do think he's a quality quality hitter, though. Plus, he has a, a little bit of speed. And really, his on-base wall a bit low at about 300 isn't that bad. I think he could definitely work it around. Because if you look in the kind of circuit league he did uh, that kind of had the four Joliet teams in it the, during the pandemic year, in 18 games, the, the on-base was about 328. So it can go higher. Plus, he's a decent little shortstop defensively. So, I mean, there's there's a lot there. Like I said, I think it's a pretty fair return for for Davidson. So yeah, I, I do think it's I do think it's a fair return, especially for you know as 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 good as he is. It's only a couple months. It's yeah. only like a little a bit of time they traded for him. So yeah, uh, I, I think it makes sense. Exactly. So with that, we'll go to kind of the bigger trade of the week that's over in the American Association, and that of course would be. About uh, a little over a week ago, or it officially went through like three days ago, but it was more than that. Uh, Milwaukee traded Christian Correa to Fargo Moorhead for Dylan Kelly and Corel Prime. Also, to make it seem less lopsided, because I know when I first saw that, I was like, okay, that's a really steep price for Correa. Yeah. Supposedly, the completed previous trade one was when uh, Manny Boskan got sent from Milwaukee to Fargo Moorhead and it's important to note that Boskin did lead the league in batting this past season so that's a, that's another important thing here so they traded essentially Boskin and Correa for Kelly and Prime and which I think makes the deal a lot better but either way it's a huge trade just names going each way here well absolutely I think at least starting with with Correll Prime I mean sending uh, sending him to Milwaukee. I mean that that Milwaukee lineup is oh just scary. I mean it's it, it's ridiculous when you throw in a guy like Prime, who's more of a high contact type of dude. Um, it certainly helps the lineup that to really help balance like the massive power that they have and at times swing and miss as well. Um, but they're, they're bringing in a guy like Prime. He's going to get on base. He's going to run. Uh, and he's not going to strike out very much. I think it's a good way to to kind of balance that lineup um, that that a lot of other teams don't really have. I mean, and then when you when you look at the other big part of this, as far as uh, Christian Correa behind the plate, I mean, you're not going to find a lot of guys uh, who can put up the offensive numbers that that Christian Correa can. Of course, Correa uh, ended the year with Lexington, uh, won a championship, uh, but it was clear that you know he, he's he's an yeah. American Association guy just at the end of the season, just playing in Lexington to get some more at-bats. 
Uh, and, and, he, and he performed well even in Lexington, but he, he had a great year in Milwaukee. I mean, hitting 282, OPS of 833, uh, 13 home runs, 16 home runs overall between the American Association and the Atlantic League in 98 games. I mean, he is, he is definitely one of the top tier offensive catchers you'll find in the American Association. And, and I think that's a really big pickup for Fargo Moorhead because that, that's a rare commodity, especially, especially in indie ball. Where a lot of those guys are usually in MLB organizations, catchers who can who can really swing the bat well. So uh, I think I think it's a move that makes a lot of sense for both sides. Uh, certainly high quality talent going in this deal, but uh, I do I do like the I, I do like the trade for for both sides. Like once once as you mentioned uh, with with Boscan also involved yeah. in the deal as well. Exactly. Like if Boscan wasn't involved in the deal, I would say that it's definitely a win. 100% of the way from Milwaukee. There's no way around that. Yeah. But when you include Boskin, it's like, well, he was kind of the batting champ of the year. So, I mean, it's, it's hard to say that he's not worth a hefty price. So, it kind of levels it out there. Likewise, I think Correa is a solid bat. I mean, we saw he was a quality bat over the past year. But Prime, like you mentioned, he adds something to the Milwaukee lineup they don't necessarily have. Their whole lineup is kind of big bombers. It's kind of their whole deal. So adding a guy like him and Kelly in definitely help kind of balance that out. And I do want to point out on Twitter, uh, Jack Jennings sent me what would kind of be a makeshift lineup for Milwaukee after they picked up the options on David Washington and Cole Sturgeon. Here's what their one through nine looks like right now. You have Aaron Hill, who hit 283 this past season, 12 home runs. Mason Davis, who was hurt for part of the year as well. So that's important to note with Mason. 321, didn't have any home runs there. Fine. Then you go to Corel Prime, 304, with 18 home runs. So it's not like he's only a contact hitter here. The dude still has power there. Four hole, of course, Adam Brett Walker. I mean, home run champion of the league, it seems like, for all times and for forever. Uh, 320 and 33 home runs. Again, someone please sign a man that has... An on-base and slugging of over a thousand. The man should be signed, but for whatever reason isn't. Then David Washington comes in, the former major leaguer. Will Kengor, obviously someone that we all know very well. Uh, Dylan Kelly, Logan Trowbridge, Cole Sturgeon. That's a pretty damn good one through nine lineup. That's scary. I mean, that's, that's a scary lineup. I mean, they, I look at that lineup and I'm just thinking, like, they're really isn't a weak spot at all like i kind of guess where you have to get your shots in is that eight nine one and two spot that's really the only area where it's like okay well maybe you could take advantage of this but even then i mean a guy that's batting 283 and a guy that's batting 320 you're not really having an easy task there. i mean trowbridge batted nearly 300 too so i mean it's, yeah. it's, it's, that's just nuts. So that, that is a really solid lineup there. As far as Fargo goes, I am kind of interested to see how they're going to use Correa. Obviously, they already had like three or four catchers on their roster this past year, which is the kind of confusing part to me because they had Boskin, they had Kevin Krause, obviously they had Dylan Kelly as well, but that's but a swap there. I'm kind of interested to see how he's going to get used in there. I assume they'll keep using Krause in more of an outfield role. And Boskin can either be behind the plate and then you DH Correa or you reverse the two. So I guess that's how the plan will work. But, uh, yeah, I just, uh, 
I'm curious to see how that's going to wind up working out. I mean, regardless, it's just it's a well-balanced lineup, uh, one that doesn't really have many holes. And we know the way that Milwaukee can build a pitching staff as well. Oh, yeah. So I, I think that's the scary part is we don't even know really who's going to be in that rotation yet because it changes so much. Uh, but I, I think that it's, it is a really scary lineup and one that just it doesn't have – many doesn't have many holes in it and it's gonna it's gonna be a really really good lineup come around for next year i know it's hard to talk about next year when it's already uh Mm -hmm. october uh but it's it's still just it's still just october but that milwaukee's lineup is looking really really strong i think at this point oh absolutely and i just want to point out they also signed maglio ardornias jr too for whatever that's worth so he's now a milkman too that's kind of my reaction to it, too. He dominated the Empire League, but that doesn't mean too much in my eyes. i got to be real. Yeah. Uh, eh. Like, nice slow signing, I guess. Cool name. But, yeah. Um, yeah, anywho, I believe that just about does it for all news that we needed to get caught up on. Uh, the only thing here that I guess we'll mention quickly, just kind of in passing, because this is eh, technically last week news, Uh the Quebec Capitals and the uh, Trevivas Agals, they went ahead and sorted through the players for Equipe Quebec. So players that were signed as Equipe Quebec, they kind of got sorted out is my understanding of the situation. And then players that previously belonged to another team. So when they did the Ottawa Disposal Draft, the, the players that were distributed for Ottawa for the past year, they'll now go back to Ottawa but there were other guys that were just signed explicitly as a Kip Quebec and were also previously part of the two Canadian teams. These are the guys that are going to get separated out now back to uh, the two teams that made up Ekip. So my understanding here is now what will happen for Quebec is they will get Jordi Cabrera, Miguel Cienfuegas, uh, Stephen Knapp, Jared Mortensen, Henry Omana, uh, and then, oh god, I can't ever pronounce uh, Evan's last name here. Evan Ritsinski, I believe is how it's pronounced, but there's an R, a U-T, a C-K-Y-J. Like, the last four letters should just all not be next to each other, but for whatever reason, they are. So, uh, yeah, Evan's there on that team, too. He was in Ottawa for a bit. I believe he's a longtime gold eye, too. So, real Canadian-born player there. Uh, on the Three Rivers side, it's Kyle Thompson. Dustin Macaluso, James Bradwell, Jorge Gutierrez, and Kevin Watley. Those are the ones that will go to uh, Three Rivers. So, yeah, that's the lineup as it stands. Are the players that get de- redistributed in uh, Quebec. So, yeah. Yeah, so that sounded like the toughest part of your day. Yeah. Trying to pronounce all those yeah, names. The pronunciation of the names really sucked. And it's going to be even worse than the people that listen to this note because part of that's getting edited. <laughs> <laughs> just know you did not get the whole thing and i guess it's frustrating you're probably happy you didn't probably a good thing yeah yeah it's very frustrating because i should know the names yeah with that said do we have anything else left to add or is this just kind of a, a very simple yeah we're just i think it's just i think yeah. it's just housekeeping really yeah just returning players and you know yeah. Nothing too notable. Yeah, exactly. Like, I want to do a deeper dive here, and I know it's going to kind of be contradictory given we just spent like 10 minutes talking about trades, 
but it's kind of hard to evaluate players this early on. Some of the guys, like the ones we were evaluating, there's enough of a track record there where it's like, okay, we, we can do this with these guys and the Frontier League and a bunch of other circumstances. It's really hard to do. And quite frankly, I'm not in the mood to uh, try and break down a bunch of guys that have a handful of years of uh, professional service time at this point in time. So we'll get to that eventually, certainly. But um, yep. yeah, with that said, we do have a bit of actual like real major news here now that we're done with housekeeping news, which is Staten Island finally named a GM and we have a timeline for other announcements. And that's just huge news and great for everybody. So with that said, Gary Perone is now the GM and I believe executive vice president of the Staten Island Atlantic League Baseball Club. He was previously the assistant GM with the Brooklyn Cyclones, longtime SI resident. So he's been in Staten Island, I believe, in the article, it says for 25 years. And that's over half his life as he's only 48. So a little bit of a younger hire, but a guy that definitely knows what he's doing. Been working in sport and baseball in particular, particularly local baseball, for quite some time. So terrific hire in my mind here. Uh, definitely putting the emphasis on local hires too, which I think is a, a huge, huge plus seeing the fiasco that was the last time Staten Island had a baseball team. Well, yeah, and that was the, that was the biggest thing that I think we were looking for. If Staten Island was going to have a successful indie ball franchise, you had to have uh, people who are from Staten Island who understand the fan base that they're trying to appeal to. And I, I think Gary Perone certainly does that. Uh, of course, you know, he might have been working for the rival team uh, yeah. when, in, their, in their affiliated days with the Brooklyn Cyclones. But, hey, the Brooklyn Cyclones do a lot of things right. Yeah. Uh, certainly, from an organizational standpoint, they have a great attendance. Uh, they have a great fan base. Uh, you know, they they certainly have a lot of things working for them in the sense of you're right on Coney Island, and that's yeah. uh, that, that's that's a huge plus that Staten Island obviously does not have. However, um, I think that there's he, he's experienced in running minor league baseball. Of course, the the indie ball makes it a little bit different. Uh, but I think the fact that he's leading, you know, Staten Island, leading this new franchise, I think it's really good because um, just because he's from the area, he under he understands the market, and he understands what will get people to the games, which is something that they've struggled with for a while, a lot more, a lot better than some Midwest investment bankers, yeah. whatever, uh, whatever now. So. I think definitely a good start. Long way to go, but uh, definitely a, uh, a a good start for for Staten Island as they finally named a general manager. Yep, absolutely there. And part of the that's that being local thing is you avoid little mistakes like the pizza rats thing, which obviously is a divisive thing because locals hate it. It seems like most everybody else that isn't local liked it, and it was definitely good for for sales wise because it sold a lot of gear. But it just didn't really do anything else besides that. And I guess with that, if they didn't go as hard as they did, it wouldn't have been that big of an issue. But moving beyond that, uh, Brooklyn did a lot of things right. And I think it is a fairly similar uh, kind of setup here where they're both in New York. They are both have newer ballparks that have 
nicer views. I mean, obviously with Coney Island's ballpark, it views out right at the amusement park and at the ocean. In the case of Staten Island, you have a view of the skyline. And that skyline view is something that's very unique and that you should be able to take advantage of. He's a guy that knows how to uh, just kind of take advantage of things. When you look at Brooklyn, too, they had they were 46th in attendance in 2019 uh, for total attendance-wise. And they averaged about 4,900 a game. So, I mean, that's pretty solid, especially for a short-season team. So, I, I definitely think there's a lot that can be done here. I think he's the kind of guy that knows, obviously, what the community wants and knows how to bring in those kind of bigger ticket events. Uh, building a team wise, he did sound excited to try and get busy with building a team like that. So I'm going to be interested to see the kind of team he brings in. The timeline that was mentioned for a coaching staff should be in January. We should get that announcement. And as far as the name goes, that should come next month, which does line up with uh, just about everything that's been the plan so far. So hopefully we can get some from Staten Island once the name comes out to actually talk to us and get them on kind of go through the name decision and everything here as well as where they're leaning for coaching staff and all that comes with it. But they're moving along at a pretty good pace. I think as long as you have that coaching staff in place a little bit before January, announce it in January, sure, but kind of have the pieces in place in December, you right. should be good. Because it does kind of concern me when I think about it. Because, I mean, even if you announce it at the beginning of January, it gives you, what, three months, four months to really form a baseball club. And, well, yeah, that's certainly doable, there's still, what, 35 other independent leagues that are all trying to get their ducks in a row as well. So, well, certainly, certainly seems like that now. So, Yeah, exactly. So there's going to be competition for these players too. And as we saw in this past year, pitching is a very scarce resource. And you really don't want to be the last of the dance on that one. Otherwise, it's going to be a very, very rough year for you. And it's been clear this year especially, but in past years as well, that Pitching isn't the easiest thing to come by in the Atlantic League. I mean, it wasn't as bad in 19 and 18, but man, it was pretty bad in 21. So they definitely need to get on that. Yeah, and that's, I think that timeline that they presented makes a lot of sense. And even though that when, even when, as you mentioned, that they could start making some moves behind the scenes before, even before they officially announce uh, their their coaching staff and whatnot. Uh, they could, I think, that's certainly more likely, just because that ever all teams do it. I mean, yeah. Gastonia was doing it last year, but uh, I think that you definitely want to get a, a head start on it, especially when pitching. Uh, when pitching is as scarce as, as it is, and you would think that that's not a problem that's going to be solved uh, easily by next year. So um, I would think that it's a good timeline. I think they're moving along at a decent pace. And last year I think was a little bit of an anomaly uh, with some of with how late some of the teams were putting together uh, coaching staffs just because of COVID kind of threw things off. But I, th I think in this in this case, I think Staten Island's moving along at a, at a at a pretty decent at a pretty decent pace, and and I hope what I hope is the Staten Island Ferryhawks. Yeah, I'm really that's the one I think's really the best of all the options that were still presented. So definitely pulling for Ferryhawks as well, and we'll 
Well, sure to uh, break that down when they announce it next month. And I assume by next month they mean like November, so that way they can get Christmas sales and so. this stuff. Otherwise, uh, yeah. But on that note, I suppose we could just kind of make the move right over to the Atlantic League Awards, some of which were announced this past week. It is the Pitcher of the Year and the Player of the Year that got announced. I think collectively we all agree with Pitcher of the Year, which is Daryl Thompson from Southern Maryland. The dude had a record-setting year because he did set some long-term Atlantic League records, uh, and he just had a terrific year. As far as Player of the Year, that's a little bit more up in the air. That would be Steve Labardozzi. So, you know, certainly a good year, and... If you're going for most valuable, I think he definitely has a, a fair case to be made there. If you want to say best player, I think that's a little bit sketchier. Yeah. So as far as Daryl Thompson, first of all, just yeah. get this out of the way. Unbelievable season. He is the GOAT. Yeah. Uh, I mean, winning, I guess, what is essentially back-to-back, uh, back-to-back Atlantic League Pitcher of the Year awards because he did win in, in 2019 as well. So uh, very well-deserved. He had an incredible season once again, and uh, it wasn't close. No real uh, no real competition, I would say, for, for that. I mean, guys like Austin Nicely certainly had a nice year for York as well. Ooh, that was a nice pun. Yeah. I, I didn't pun. even intend that, but... Yeah, that was really a pun, though. There we go. Okay, I'm sure. I'm sure he's probably heard that once or twice. But, yeah. uh, uh, that but, is original. I know. Uh, so Daryl Thompson certainly the right decision. Now we get to the player of the year. Steve Lombardozzi had a great year. Uh, he, his offense really came back in ways that we hadn't really seen from him. Um, whether in 2019 with the Ducks, uh, whether in AAA previous previous years, we we. I mean, the fact that he hit whatever, however many home runs he hit, I believe like 16, 13, yeah. fit, something around there. Uh, we haven't really seen power like that from him. I mean, he had an incredible year. I don't agree with the award at all. Yeah. Um, I think it should have gone to Courtney Hawkins. Uh, I think that just because Hawkins, I mean, the dude had over 30 home runs. Uh, I mean, his OPS was over 1,100 which is just an obscene number for 92 games. Yeah. I mean, that is just not something you really see. And Courtney Hawkins, is he, he usually isn't in the Atlantic League for a full year. Um, he's usually in for like stretches where he's just dominant, then he gets picked up and he goes somewhere else. Uh, and, that, that, and Hawkins wasn't there for... He played 92 games out of 120 games regular season, so maybe that maybe that's the argument against him. But I just think the numbers are too off the charts and incredible for me to not give him that award. I just think that he had that special of a season, and I would have liked to see that that recognized. That's just how I view it. But uh, yeah, like here's the thing: like I understand the the argument against him with games. Which is fine. I mean, like, yeah, about 30 fewer games than the full season is. I guess I could see it. So what's that? About a fifth of the year he didn't play. So I, I understand holding that against him. But even if he does play that fifth, yeah, he's probably not at 1,100. But he's still over 1,000 almost certainly. And with the postseason performance, it 
they kind of tells me that he would have. So I could I would go with Courtney Hawkins. I wouldn't say that's a bad decision. For me, Tillman Puke was my MVP or my player of the year. The dude home run wise had more home runs. He had more RBIs. He had a better on base or well, not better on base, but within the same realm, better slugging, better average, or roughly the same average, but his on base and slugging was over a thousand. Like he, he looked like a better ball player or than Lapondozi was this past year. Like again, I I'm not saying that it was a bad call to give Lapondozi the award. He had a great year. I just think there were players that had a better year than he did. And Hawkins is one of them. Hugh is one of them. Honestly, there's even a couple other guys that you could probably give it to as well. Probably a couple from Gastonia, for being real. Uh, so I'm not saying that uh, it was a bad decision. And I think if you want to say who was the most valuable player to their team, and that's how you determine player of the year, then yeah, Labrandosi deserves it. But in my mind, when it's player of the year, it's just the best player that year, not the most valuable player that year. That just a distinction there in my mind. So yeah, yeah. I, I always hated. I always hated that. Like, and I know that's the wording of it, and it, yeah. it's a debate that's gone on. It, it's trend. It's transcended time, and people yeah. people talk about it all the time. Best player versus most valuable player, or best season versus most valuable player. Yeah, I always hated that argument, and I always just give it to the best season. Yeah, that's just how I view it. I just I I hate the argument of what is value because then you bring in how good the rest of their team is, and uh, like oh well, how would this team have functioned without them? It's just like it's way more complicated than it needs to be, uh, and. I think that, like, really, so, and, 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 yeah, and I'm just saying, really, it needs to be split into two different awards because it serves two different purposes. Because I understand both reasonings. I mean, obviously, you want to reward the best season, but I mean, how valuable is a guy that has a terrific season but his team misses the postseason or is just not competitive? You know. Well, I, I don't see. Why, I, yeah, I don't see why those. I, I mean, I mean, how valuable can they be? They can be extremely valuable. I mean, yeah, but if it doesn't result in wins, that I mean, it doesn't really mean much. Well, they can't pitch too. I mean, I mean sure, but I, you know that's what I'm saying here. Like, that's why you need two separate awards. Is what I'm saying. So that way you. Well, I don't. I don't know if you do because, again, I think that best season and most valuable. You can still provide a ton of value to the team, but. Um, I mean, you can still provide a ton of value to the team, but the team still couldn't isn't good. Yeah, but I'm still saying that even it it doesn't really matter how great of an individual season you have if it doesn't result in the end goal of winning games and being competitive. So then it doesn't really matter. Like you could have an amazing season and per, that does deserve recognition, but if at the end of the day it really didn't have much effect in the end result of the league, then it really doesn't mean all that much. Like, it still deserves recognition, sure, but it doesn't make it that valuable to have happened. It needed to happen when, you know, the rest of the team was on their game. So that's where I'm at on it. Like, I understand. So, yeah. I, I this, and this is why I hate this argument, Yeah. right? Because, like we get into like the wording of it when I just wish it would be, I wish the, 
the term most valuable player would be scrapped entirely. Yeah. And it would just be best play, like, like pitcher player of the year, like in, in that, because, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's just a, it's just an argument that it's like, I, I think is kind of like useless yeah. in a lot of ways. And it's when people argue like what is most valuable as far as, and when everyone agrees on like the best season, not to say that this, that, that was what happened in this case. Uh, but at the same time, I, I do think that like when you look at like most valuable player and player of the year, like it's just, it's just a stupid argument. Like let's just, just make it player of the year and make this nice and easy. I suppose. Yeah. Either way, even if they're using it as an MVP, they called it Player of the Year, and I just, you know, it was a great year by Lopendozi. I just don't know if it was the best year there. Oh but. no, I agree. I think we're we're both in agreement there that yeah. Lopendozi is it should not have won this award, yeah. regardless of what it's called. Yeah, like that's that's just where it is. Like that's the thing. Like even most valuable player, I think it may have been a little bit of a stretch. Like I can understand not wanting to give it to a Lexington player, even though at that point it's like, well, they're a victim of their own success at this point, but. Like I could understand it more, but the, the, the calling a player, calling him the player of the year is just—it's a little stretch there. But yeah, I don't think I commented on Daryl Thompson though, and I do want to comment on Daryl Thompson. The dude just—there was no other real option in my mind other than Daryl. I mean, dude had almost 170 innings pitched through four complete games and had an ERA of 3.20, which might as well just be like a sub one ERA given the way that offense was in the Atlantic league this past year. It's just a fantastic year. And from a dude that's 35 too. So, I mean, he's just, he's something else. I really don't know how he's able to keep doing this. Uh, but yeah, he just kind of finds ways to keep doing this. And it's really yeah. amazing to me. It's incredible. Yeah. He, he's just a, he's just a freak of nature, honestly. Yeah. He's just an awesome, uh, awesome pitcher and a guy that he just seems to get better with age. And I, I wouldn't see why that wouldn't continue. Yeah, I mean, like the dude's got the wins record. I imagine he's going to wind up with the innings record next year. I think he's only about nine innings off or so. So maybe like one or two starts in the next year, and boom, he's going to have it. So. <sighs> It just and he has the strikeout record too. I think honestly at this point, the question really becomes: Is Daryl Thompson the best pitcher in Atlantic League history? Because he makes a very strong case for it. I mean, resume. It's hard to speak on like talent because there's a lot of yeah. guys that come in and out, and like, there's a reason they get out so quick. Yeah. But as far as like a career and a resume, I, I think he definitely is. Yeah, like there's there's a couple other possibilities in my mind you could go like a joe gannon who was around for a while he's up there too a john bromwell tim kane or brownell he's uh they're they're up there too in my mind but i mean daryl thompson is the dude just keeps going like that's the thing like if he had two or three seasons where he's really good and then it just kind of tailed off from there and now just the counting stats are going up from him playing for so long I would think differently, but the guy just doesn't have bad years. And that's what makes him amazing. That, that really is what sets Daryl Thompson apart from, from the rest of the crowd as, as he continues to age. And again, don't see, I don't see why that wouldn't continue next year because, uh, he seems to keep loving to pitch. I mean, he's throwing playoff games on two days rest and I mean, he's just a psycho. 
it's it's just awesome. Yeah, it, it's amazing to watch there. And before we move on, because I do have the Atlantic League record page up, I'm looking at like the season ERA record. Do you think that Sean Bierman's 1.79 ERA for a season is safe? You you would think. Like, especially they don't do anything about the offense. There's no way anyone touches that, right? No, I I, I think that's pretty safe. But I would say, is the, is the record book still, like, through the 2018 season or I, something? I believe so, yeah. But I don't think anyone in 19, Ugh. and I know no one in 20, yeah, through 21 season, yeah. Jeez. I mean, like, guys, come on. Like, I'm, I'm pretty confident that people at the Atlantic League listen to the show because immediately after we started complaining about the social media is not doing anything, they started doing stuff. So either that's a weird coincidence or we have sway. And I'm sure there's other possibilities, but I'm not going to acknowledge those. Um, they need to acknowledge them. Exactly. So... Guys, please just update the record book. I mean, like, most of it you're not actually changing. Like, it's really update Daryl Thompson's numbers and some save records. That's pretty much it. Like, by and large, there's nothing that needs to be updated that heavily. It's just there's little things here that could really be updated. Just get it through the 21 season. You have two years you got to just add on. It's really not that hard. Like, it could take an afternoon. Yeah, it'd be like an afternoon to update it. I'm sure you could spare an afternoon somewhere. But, uh, yeah. Any case, uh, two other news items before we head out for the week. Uh, first thing up here. The Sonoma, I believe it's Stompers or Stampeders or I'm pretty sure it's Stompers. Uh, it doesn't really matter because they're no longer an indie ball club. Normally that would mean that they folded, but in this it means they go to a summer college league. Uh, they leave the Pacific Association to go to the California Collegiate League. It's a collegiate league for colleges all throughout California, as you could probably guess. Uh, it was a move they were kind of eyeing for quite some time now, apparently. And given the fact they didn't play in 20 and the fact they didn't play in 21, it just made it no longer uh, viable for them to continue as a professional club. So now they go to an amateur club, a status they do have. A decent chance of, I think, being healthy and sticking around there. So if you're in Sonoma, that's uh, a positive. At least the team's still there, even if it's not professional baseball. What is a negative, if you are a Pacific Association fan or affiliated with that league, uh, you only have about two teams left, and that is not good because that does not make a league. So if you're with the Vallejo Admirals or Napa Silverados, you may want to be looking for an out right now because it's looking yeah. like uh, that league is not long for this earth. So there are two teams remaining, correct? Yes, at least according to their website. There are two remaining, but the website has yet to update that Sonoma is out. I mean, the I mean at this point, if you want to continue, you just go to the Pecos League, and I think that's it. Yeah, like... What else can you do? Exactly, because already there's these teams play in like city parks and whatnot. So I mean, it's to call it a professional league. It is technically a professional league. The, the players are paid, and you know it operates like that. But it's really not what you think of when you think professional baseball, even on an independent league level. And that's not to disparage right. it. I, I know people over in Vallejo, and they're great guys, and you know they put on a good product. I mean, Vallejo is a solidly well-ran organization i mean hell look at pj he went from managing a vallejo to 
winning an Atlantic League championship. And there's been plenty of guys that have went through the Pacific Association and used that as a stepping stone to get into uh, more well-thought-of independent leagues and continue their careers. And, hell, there's been players from the Pacific Association that have actually made the major leagues. I believe uh, Chris Maz is the most glaring example of that. But, yeah, they're, they're not in a good place right now, and I think that's pretty clear. And I do wonder if they just go to the, P- the Pecos League or if they just bang up shop the real killer here is the fact that they're not, that they didn't play last year. That's two years of not playing for teams that really don't average that much in attendance. That's really going to be a major killer because now, not only from a business perspective, has your brand essentially just been dead for two years now. It also just tacks on a lot of other finances. It makes it really hard to get all, all the operations that you had running back up and running. And like I said, the main issue here is really just kind of getting the fan engagement back. Because, I mean, after two years of not seeing you play ball, they probably, a lot of them at least, probably don't care. Or it's going to be really hard to get them back. So uh, it's unfortunate, certainly. Yeah, it, it, is, it is unfortunate. But I think, you know, I think the pandemic really just put the nail in the coffin. And with a league that has such a small margin for error... Like the Pacific Association does, yeah. Um, it's just really hard to recover from something like that and not playing for two years. Like it's it's hard to envision a situation where the Pacific Association uh, continues to uh, continues to say. I mean, I mean, you could like, even in this article. I mean, the league has 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 had trouble. Uh, keeping even as many as four teams involved. I mean, there's just, I, I don't see a team that is willing, going to be willing to jump into professional baseball, uh, and uh, overtake these costs at this time. It doesn't, yeah. it wouldn't make sense. At it's, least no one that's trustworthy that you'd want to do business no. with. Yeah. I, I can't see a way this, this league survives. Yeah. It's, it's just unfortunate the way it is. Plus, I mean, they lost, uh, what was it, San Rafael not too long ago yes. to the Pacific Association, as well as a couple others. And there were other markets that could have worked that went elsewhere. Uh, so, you know, it's unfortunate, but uh, that's just the way it is. And, uh, yeah, the last uh, little bit of news here, because we were going to talk about uh, the Australian Baseball League, but in addition to just not fitting the timeline here, I'm not sure how relative that is to independent league baseball, even though a lot of indie ball guys go over and play in Australia. Uh, if we need something to talk about next week, we'll bring it up next week. If not, uh, I'm sure we'll get to it at some point in the future. But uh, news that did come out this week that is really sad, to be honest, uh, is uh, Tyler Heron. Uh, he passed away in Puerto Rico playing in the Roberto Clemente League, I believe is the league's name there. And uh, as of right now, the cause of death is unknown, but it appears he, it was just a sudden death in his apartment. So uh, very sad. Obviously, uh, you know, thoughts go out to, to his family and his friends and all those that were surrounding him. So it's an unfortunate situation, obviously. It's not the news you want to hear. And it's, it really is, you know, it it's unexpected. It, it, there's no real words for that. Yeah, it's hard. It's hard, really, to put into words, just because. Um, I mean, it's just crushing news. Really sad news. A guy who's 
uh, who's pitched for many, many different indie ball teams, who was, uh, who's really touched the lives of, uh, of, of fans and, uh, of course, other teammates. I mean, countless, countless players have taken to social media to express what, what Tyler Heron meant to them. I mean, Heron pitched in the American Association for a little bit this year, even. Yeah. Uh, he, he pitched in, in the Atlantic League as well. Um, uh, even with the Somerset Patriots back in their, uh, their championship season in 2015, he, he pitched for a little bit. So, um, just really, really sad news. And, uh, it, it's, it's really just horrible. And just the thoughts and prayers go out to, to the Heron family or who are dealing with this. I'm sure they're, they're stunned, as stunned as, uh, as everyone else is. And it, it's really hard and just gone way too soon, but a, a really nice guy. I've gotten a chance to act, interact with him a couple of times. Yeah. Just a really, just a really, really nice guy, uh, that, that really loved playing the game of baseball for sure. And, um, and loved the game of baseball enough to continue to play. Indie yeah. ball until I mean until he's 35 years old, where a lot of guys would just pack it up. But you know his passion just continued to show, and um, it's just just really really sad news. Um, and gone way Tyler Heron gone way way too soon, and just just yeah. really news that's tough to take. Yep, absolutely there. And I mean he was one of the guys who was just kind of always around in independent league baseball. Not to harp too much on. You know, just the, the on the field person, because obviously there's a whole another person there. But I mean, he's a guy that I mean, as a starting pitcher, threw over 800 innings in independent league baseball in some form of another. So it's uh, it certainly is a shock. You didn't expect to see it at all. And uh, yeah, I I interacted with him a little bit as well. And nice guy. Obviously, I don't think anyone would say anything. Uh, negative about him i think you'd be hard pressed to find anyone with anything negative about him and he also did manage to pitch internationally too for team israel as well so i mean the dude uh the dude had a, a hell of a career obviously that's not what they're they're going to talk about now but but yeah so I, I suppose uh just best wishes to to his family at this time so yeah absolutely yeah. i know it's a real downer way to to end this week's show but it's just kind of where we're at. We don't get to kind of pick the news, and I suppose it's it's better to get to it at the end than have this hang over the whole whole hour, I guess. But but uh, yeah, with that, uh, we're just basically out of stuff to talk about this week. We'll be back again next week, and I suppose we could start uh, getting into full off season mode. We'll talk about you know wrap up some seasons because I know I remember back when the Frontier League finished and the American Association finished. And last week, even, we said we're going to talk about these leagues in the offseason. We have more time to just kind of break them down and just kind of discuss them. So I suppose we could kind of get going on that while we schedule interviews and get all our usual offseason programming up and running again. So we'll be sure to get on all of that. So you can look forward to that going forward. And you don't want to miss an episode. And to not miss an episode, you can follow us on social media where we will always promote the episodes themselves uh, on Twitter at IndieBallPod, on Instagram at ALPB underscore news and Indie Ball Report. 
You can also be sure to not miss any episodes by subscribing to the podcast feed wherever you find podcasts. So tune in Stitcher, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, uh, Amazon Music, uh, iHeartRadio. Like I said, pretty much anywhere you find podcasts, you will find the show. So be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the feed so that way you don't miss any of those episodes. And if you want to just find it all in one easy, convenient place, everything from articles to show notes to the episodes themselves, you can do so on IndieBallReport.com. So be sure to check that out as well. Uh, With that said, do we have anything else uh, left to add before we end off this week? Things to add for this week. Um, well, college basketball is starting soon, so that's that's exciting. Um, no, I'll actually throw this to you, Nick, because yeah. uh, because I, I do want to ask you a question, and maybe, maybe you can uh, maybe you can tell the people about about your trip to uh, to Quinnipiac to watch your uh, that, to watch your North Dakota hockey team. Yeah, see, that was going to be one of my things to add this week, so. That's actually the top thing, actually. So I appreciate giving me the uh, soft intro to that. So went up there on Friday. Friday's game, not that great. Did not enjoy watching them play like total crap, which is basically what they played like. Uh, There's very little energy there, and I got shit from Quinnipiac fans on the way out. So didn't love Friday. So we're just going to skip over that and pretend it didn't happen. As far as Saturday went, much better game. Went up there. Uh, Both days I was basically on the glass. One day I was... Three rows, and then on Saturday, I was uh, two rows away from the ice. So really solid there on seating-wise. But they came out. They played really hard. They played a physical game. They wound up winning 3-1, to one, which is obviously great to see. Goaltending had a good bounce-back performance. Team looked engaged. It looked ready to win. So all in all, a fantastic time around there as far as the hockey is concerned. As far as the arena and the campuses are concerned, Quinnipiac has this weird thing where there's like three or four campuses. So it's very hard to kind of keep up here. And from my understanding, the one campus is for all the grad schools. So if you're doing any sort of a graduate program, a med school, a law school, anything like that, you're on the one campus. Then there's the York Hill campus where the arena is. And there is the um, the mainly dorms and things like that. So that seems like kind of the student campus. And then there's the third campus, which I don't really know the name of because I didn't bother going there because it has no relevance to me because that seems to be the undergrad campus. And yeah, so then that's obviously where most of the classes are. And then there's a couple other Quinnipiac affiliated buildings throughout the the town or city of Hamden. Uh, So it's a nice campus, though, I will say, for the two that I've seen. Uh, Newer buildings, all very nice. And when you go to the arena one, if you kind of look out, because it's obviously on a hill, you just see like all of like the surrounding area and all the trees that are now changing colors because it's the, you know, the end of October. So it looked very pretty, really nice. The arena itself is kind of like a dual setup. On one half of it, it's for basketball. So it's the basketball setup. On the other half, it's the hockey setup. So it's the hockey setup. Uh, it's a college hockey rink. I'm kind of spoiled because I'm used to looking at like North Dakota's arena a lot. So it's it doesn't really compare for that reason, but it is a very nice arena. You have your typical scoreboard, 
seating balls go there really isn't a bad seat to have in the arena so it's definitely nice it was a fun little trip so i'd highly recommend that and then there's this one kind of like bar place that everyone goes before the game eli's it's on whitney street so that was a nice little place to go to as well all in all uh solid trip definitely enjoyed it and my north dakotas are playing actually as you listen to it if you listen day of release tonight in nashville against penn state for the u.s hockey hall of fame game Ooh, so that i knew penn state was going to nashville yeah i did not know north dakota was there yeah it's supposedly like as of last night meaning thursday night all of nashville is just covered in north dakota people they're good all I, over I, there. I, as someone who cannot stand penn state or literally anything about penn state i will be rooting i'll be pulling for you appreciate that and honestly like i've seen this in in person because every year north dakota basically does a trip normally it's the hockey hall of fame game but when i first got to see them in person in 2016 they went to msg and i was like oh they're playing boston college it'll probably be mostly bc fans they could literally just take the train down into penn and come up and then they're right in the garden you know i don't expect a lot of north dakota people to be there so i mean it is what it is I walked into Madison Square Garden. For people that have been to the garden before, you know what it's like to walk in there. The whole arena, and I'm not, like, kidding you. I genuinely mean the whole arena was a sea of North Dakota Kelly Green. Like, in the whole time I was there, and the people that know, know the capacity of Madison Square Garden. I saw 10 people wearing BC stuff. Everyone else How was wearing. How is that possible? I, I don't know. I was just like, holy crap. I saw 10 people. I remember counting them. There's only like 10 people with BC gear. Holy shit. And it was like so weird because like BC would score and there'd be like this little like pocket of, yeah, like cheering. And then North Dakota would score and like you would just hear this roar come over and it was like, holy crap. It's like these these people travel really well, and like we were talking to uh, to this one woman there, and she's like, "Yeah, no, we all came out here because this was like beginning of December time, so I guess a lot of them said, oh, well, we'll go out to New York, we'll do all the touristy stuff and see like the city during Christmas time.'" And they were saying one night we were trying to find a place for all of us to eat, meaning the whole like group that came out from North Dakota, and the only place that could like fit that many people was the Empire State Building, and they took over an entire floor of the building. (laughs) So, like, it it travels really well. Like, if you watch the game, I guess now it's night when you're listening to this, and you look around the crowd when they do the camera pans, I promise you, it will be mostly Kelly Green. So, it's a really good time there. So, uh yeah, the only other thing I want to add really quick this week, saw two really good movies this week. One you probably know about, it's Dune. Uh, you know, I'm not a big sci-fi guy, I gotta be honest. Not really my cup of tea. This, like, it's sci-fi, don't get me wrong. It doesn't feel that sci-fi. It has a really good pacing. It's a fairly good script. Like, it doesn't, like, batter you down too much. Really enjoyable. And it's the very rare movie, I would say, See it in IMAX if you can, because it will actually enhance the experience. That being said, that was only the second best movie I'd seen this week. The best one is The Last Duel. 
it's not an easy watch, I will say that, just based off of the subject of the film itself, particularly when you get into, because it's separated like chapter one, two, and three, when you start to get to the back half of chapter two, and then for a large chunk of chapter three, it is not easy to watch, but my God, is it a fantastic movie. And somehow the 84-year-old Ridley Scott just continues to manage to turn out hits. And he still has another one this year in House of Gucci. So I really do recommend, because not a lot of people have seen The Last Duel from the box office number. It just came out at a bad time. And the marketing did a terrible disservice. I do really recommend, if you are at all into movies, I do recommend The Last Duel heavily. It's a really, really, really good movie. I, I really just want to put that out there. Eventually, when we get to the end of the year, I'm going to review, like, the top, I guess, three or five movies from the year for me, because I'm big into, you know, movies, cinema, that kind of thing. But, yeah, I just want to touch on that to try and get one last push before a bunch of other stuff comes out and overshadows it. If you can see The Last Duel, it's worth it, and it's definitely worth seeing in a theater. There we go. Yep. So that's that's all I got to add. Um, yeah, I think that's uh, pretty good. I think it's pretty good. So uh, until next week, don't forget to uh, play ball.